Amen. As you remain standing for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to begin in chapter 9, verse 35, going through chapter 10, verse 7, as we break ground on a new topic, as a topic of evangelism has come to a close, he now opens up a new topic for us, beginning to advance the thought. So take heed, listen, and open your hearts to the Word of God, beginning at chapter 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebacus the surname Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not in the way of the Gentiles, and into any of the city of the Samaritans enter you not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and make us attentive to this, your word. Lord, we pray that this is not merely a sermon that has been prepared, but a message from God that we are to receive. And so we pray that as the minister preaches, that you will exalt Christ and that you would cause me to decrease, but him to increase, and his mission for his people and his church would be clearly seen. As we begin, we ask that the Spirit of God would impress upon each one of us the portion and part and the role that we have in your church in the time that we have life yet left to live. We are thankful, Lord, that you have promised that your word will not go forth void, It will not go forth empty or return into you void. It will go forth with power. And so we claim that now in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. While Matthew is written in some parts with an evangelical focus, and we have been camping out in some ways in a part of that focus through chapters 8 and chapters 9, That was not the only purpose of his gospel. We now come to a new section. We've been primarily in an evangelistic passage, and that has exhorted us, encouraged us, caused us to take heed and to examine ourselves. And yet, we now come to a different topic that should be rather evident. We come to a portion of Matthew that addresses the question of now, What does evangelized persons or people do with their lives? And so this is very relevant for you. 
If you are here in Christ and you are regenerated and you are embracing Christ as your Lord, what are you to do? What is part of your life? It's not all about bringing people to Christ to be saved. It's about getting them there to make them followers of His mission. As we consider specifically the mission of these twelve apostles, which we will be doing over the subsequent weeks in this passage, there are two levels that we need to consider the Word. On the first level is the historical level, the very historical setting of these twelve apostles and what's going on then and there in that particular context. But there is also an exemplary level, which is a model that is here presented for us, and that is very practical and relevant to us as His body and His people in church. So we enter into a new portion now that will show us the mission of the twelve apostles. And on that level, it becomes a model, even in a broader sense, to us, His people, His church. Now this is very relevant for us, particularly where we are in a growth, in a place, in a state of our own ministry. As I reflected on this passage, I reflected back upon the exemplary level, which could be very practical to us here. We started off as a mission work ourselves, almost 12 years ago, with just a very few families, with one elder, no deacons, and not much money, and hardly a place to meet. And not many homes. And all sorts of uncertainties. And God has grown us. And He has supplied our needs beyond our wildest imaginations. He has not only fanned the flames of a vision that we had for Him, but He has taken us into new heights of places that we have not even begun to dream could be possible And He continues to unfold a grand plan before us as His people unite in peace and unity for the work He's given us to do. And now we must consider His mission for this church from a different perspective. Once we have a solid group of saints like we now do, We need to be progressing in our sanctification, in our planning, yea, even in our vision, into the next aspect of fulfilling what Christ's mission is for this church. It's been on my heart for some time to develop a missions philosophy, and now that we are providentially entering this portion of Scripture, this will help us corporately come along in an understanding of how to move forward in the groundwork that will be from here to the end of the book. As we begin this portion of Scripture, you personally need to be asking yourself, what part do I play in Christ's mission of the church? Because as a member of His body, you have a part to play. As we turn the page and just look at where this chapter is ending, We have even a very simple and even a very small portion that he says in verse 42, and whoever gives 
one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. Assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. If your part in the mission of Christ's church is but to give but a cup of cold water to the least of his disciples, then you take heed to that ministry that you fulfill it. Because that is a very significant role to play. So as we consider what we have before us, we have just now an opening of the very first portion of a passage that gives us the conditions that drives Christ's mission, conditions that are true in every age, in every generation, and then how this mission effectively begins. And that's what I'd like to cover this morning, is the conditions of the mission that drive the mission, and then the very beginning of how that mission begins. We see a historical setting, and we also have the exemplary uh, and model for us to follow. As we begin this passage of Scripture, we have, first of all, the Lord's assessment of the spiritual condition of the people. This is one of those conditions, and the first of those conditions, that drives His mission. If you were to ask the Lord, what do you think about the people we are involved in? If the disciples were asking Him in that historical setting, they may say, what do you see when you see these people? And He would answer and say, I think they are distressed. They are dispirited. And those are the two words he chose as he then expresses what these people were. They were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Those two words, the first one is especially striking, especially when the use of sheep here is being used as the illustration because the first word that is translated in the New King James as weary is a word that does not mean to be weary. It's a term for skinning an animal or stripping the hide off of it. But when it is used of people, it has reference of harassing them or bullying them. I see a people that are harassed and bullied. People that have been distressed in some fashion. They are stressed. The second word is an idea that means to throw down, to cast down. And it doesn't refer physically, but something inside of themselves. You might say, I'm a little down today. My spirit is cast down. And that's the internal idea of this word that Jesus is showing us, dispirited. Now this is true, not only for the historical setting, but it is true for all generations and all peoples who have lived since that time. People are stressed. They are skinned up. They are cast down. And that's an accurate description of the people around us today. The people in our community apart from Christ. The people in our county the people of this state and of this country and around the world. They are skinned up. 
and cast down. And this is what life is in this fallen world. Life is really short. We don't live very long. I was reminded yesterday of how stressed life can be. I was reminded this morning in getting out of the shower and how painful life can be. I look in the mirror and see all those gray hairs that weren't as many 12 years ago and and there is a process that I cannot stop. There is a finality to life and everybody is heading toward death. And that is sad. In verse 36, Jesus puts the illustration, puts his finger on the problem with this illustration, and he says, People are like sheep without a shepherd. And that's the problem with life. They wander around like a flock, intent every day to get enough to eat for that day. They wander into troubles of every sort. They are subject to predators. They are torn. They are frightened. They are senseless. Some will attack grandparents. <laughs> they are, that was an inside joke for those of you who don't know the prayer request of a senseless sheep that just attacked one of our members' grandparents. We have sheep. I have learned a lot about sheep. We have had one of those attacking rams. And they get confused and they don't know what they are doing. And yet all of these sheep do not know how to get one of them to lead them in a better way. They have no ability to do that. And that describes people. We all are like dumb, frightened, senseless, vulnerable sheep who go everyone his own way. We turn our own way and we're up against something very predatory. We've already seen a number of times up till now that the Lord has relieved people from demonic possession and one of the things he's trying to illustrate to his disciples is there is a predatory nature about a people who have no shepherd. They are up against predators. People are weak. They don't live very long. And while they do live, they are subject to every kind of infirmity. And most people's infirmities, by the way, are spiritual, not physical. You take all of your physical infirmities that accumulated over your entire lifetime and your spiritual infirmities far exceed those physical ones. Our need is not to have more entertainment nor amusement in life. We don't need more distraction. We need a shepherd. Someone who knows the sheep. Someone who knows how to tenderly feed them. Knows their idiosyncrasies and all of their weaknesses so that when He leads them, they will eat and they will drink. And He knows how to protect us from care. And He knows how to lay His hand on us reassuringly when we need it. 
But you think about the many ways in which people try to insulate themselves from the harshness of life. But folks, as we have already rehearsed once and we have done it again, the curse is going to get every one of us. People will spend everything they have just to live another day. But the curse is going to get us all. And what we need is a good shepherd. That is what we need. And there is one who gave his life for us to show us that he is the one. He is not a hireling. And he laid down his life for us. No man took it from him. He laid it down and he had power to do it and he had power to take it up. And he's showing us this is what you need. So first we have the spiritual condition of the people and their need. They are people that are distressed and bullied and dispirited and cast down inside. But then we see in verse 37, and then he says to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful. And that's the second condition we have here that is driving His great mission. We have a condition of the large number of people that needs this Good Shepherd. The harvest is plentiful. And what the Lord is moved to at this point is the very high numbers of people. There are a lot of them. And Matthew has brought our attention to the multitudes and the crowd beginning in chapter 4 onward to the place that we're in. He reminds us of the multitudes and the crowds who are following the shepherd and how many of them there are. Because there are a lot of people ready to be harvested. And that fact has not changed since Jesus' day in historical setting with His twelve apostles. It took the world until 18 centuries after the time of Christ to reach a population of 1 billion people. And then from 1800 to the year 2000, just in those next 200 years, the population went from 1 billion to 5 billion. It is estimated by the year 2050, we will be an additional 5 billion. And these are grave concerns for the world who sees these statistics and demographics. They think the solution is to stop having children. And Jesus' solution is, no, these numbers need to be harvested for the kingdom. These people are in far greater amounts of stress. And in these great numbers and great multitudes, even today and that will continue, they are distressed and dispirited. And they need a shepherd. And how true that is today as it was for the day back in the Apostles. And after considering the spiritual state of the people around us, Jesus reminds us of their great numbers that needs to be harvested, and He brings us to that third condition. 
that drives his mission given in the end of verse 37, but the laborers are few. There are so few laborers for the crop. The illustration he now turns to is one of a farmer who has so much harvest that he is unable to gather it all in, so the produce just rots upon the vine and in the field. And that's the picture our Lord is presenting here, that the harvest is so plentiful and the labors are so few that there is a great need. There is a great need for this harvest. Because it is very sad to see all the multitudes in such a vast number in their greatest need of a good shepherd. But they don't even know their biggest problem. And among them, they cannot find One with the ability to lead them. They can see they have many problems. They must acknowledge and do that everyone dies. And we see many people rotting on the vine. Yet there are so few laborers to go into God's fields and pick the produce and gather it into His kingdom. And that's the state of the world. It's always been that way in every generation. And the Lord is telling us, we are the workers. You are a worker in His mission and in this field of harvest. We are a people who have been evangelized and there is a mission for such a people. And you need to be asking, what is my part? Because you have a definite part. And we are a people now who are in a position to help. The question that should bring this to a head for us all here is this. Are you spending your life in any kingdom consequence? Folks, I want you to answer that question right now. Are you spending your life in any kingdom consequence? Young people, I want you to hear me. I want you to ask that question. Today, it saddens me when I see young couples, and I'm not just talking about people here at Heritage. I'm talking about all over in the kingdom. Where you have young couples that are coming together and getting married, and as soon as they do, they go to the margins of the kingdom work. They fade into the background, to the outside, whereas before they had a a significant ministry and something they were involved in, and they get together and they go. I've always told every couple that the ministry that you have Together, being married in the kingdom of God will be greater than the sum of the parts that you have individually if you are faithful to the Lord. And that is true. That is part of God's bringing a marriage together. So young people, if you're single, young people, if you're married or about to get married or have been married, you think about do you have kingdom significance and consequential things that you are doing for the kingdom? There's a propensity and even a pattern among many today in the church that they get married and they fade to the margins. 
And they focus on each other and their own little family unit. And they have friends that come in, mostly contemporary with their own peers, but not across the generations as much. And they begin to have children and and they begin having children. And when they are finished growing these children, then they say that I will do something for the Lord. And folks, you better bring these children up in the context of the kingdom mission and not wait for the time to ripen in order to equip them for that because the time will be well past. It's been my greatest privilege and my greatest joy. Though I may not have chosen the path had I had been given it, I certainly would not have. We were just talking about that yesterday. No, it was this morning. Because it was 30 years ago this day that we were preparing to be married. And this was the day of our rehearsal dinner. My wife came over to me and kissed me and she says, I would have it no other way and I would choose you all over again. And I looked at her and I said, would you? Knowing what you know now. And the difficulties that we've had and the challenges and going to the ministry. She goes, yes, by the grace of God. I said, if God had shown me the path that I should follow for the next 30 years, I would not have chosen that way again. Now, understand me, I am very thankful. But at the time back then, when it was faced in front of me, had I seen everything, I would not be strong enough or mature enough to have chosen that difficult path. I'm so thankful to have been on it. But God gave us the ability to be on a wonderful path and a wonderful journey in which our children just grew right up into the midst of the kingdom work in which we were called to. I had the great privilege of taking my son door to door, knocking on doors, inviting people to church and giving them the gospel because there was nobody else that would come to church. I had to go out and do the very difficult work that I am not fit to do. But the joy of then seeing that then four-year-old telling the gospel to the neighbor across the street, sitting on the curb, inviting him to church, having great boldness, just unawares, And then the joy of seeing that family with the mother and her two children coming to Christ and then later her husband. Part of the mission that the children didn't even apprehend at the time, they were so an integral part of because it was the air they breathed, it was the life they lived, it was part of what God had called us to. And it was a great joy and a conviction even of my own heart. Young people, do not move to the margins after you are married. And when you have children thinking it will be a greater day and a better opportunity, now is the day. You have a great work to do. You have a great mission to follow. And Christ has given you the authority to be successful. Do not go to the margins. Because the labors are so few and the harvest is truly plentiful and you will not understand nor appreciate in this life all the things that God has in store for you if you are but faithful.
here we have a sad state of the world. Distressed, dispirited, skinned up, cast down. And we are a people who have come out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And there is a mission for us and a definite part to play. And that question does ask us, are we spending our life in any kingdom consequence? There are a lot of people, but the labors are still few in comparison. And now that we've considered those conditions that are driving Christ's mission, let us now consider where this mission work begins. So where does this mission work begin? And he says, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers for the harvest. Success in Christ's mission will begin with prayer. We will end this book when he says, after he has given us this trek and all of this information and instructing, he will end this book and he says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and in earth. Now go and make disciples and teach them because you will be successful. But the very place in that where that begins is prayer. Conditions being what they are, we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth the workers into that harvest. The work of Christ's mission begins with His church praying for laborers. And we need to pray that God would send laborers into the harvest, not merely pray for the laborers that are already there, which we must do and which is good to do. We need to evaluate the world. We need to see its greatest needs. We need to see the way that Jesus sees and pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers to be raised up and sent out. Natural question emerges at this point. It's been a question of mine for a while. Well, who is the Lord of the harvest? Is that God the Father? Is that God the Son? Is that God the Holy Spirit? Who are we to beseech to send out labors? And I think as we go through the passage, that becomes clear because it is the Lord of the harvest that will send the laborers out. And we see in chapter 10, verse 1, He called the twelve. He gave them power. In verse 5, then He sent them out. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. The lordship of the harvest is Christ's own prerogative. It is He who calls the laborers. It is He who equips them for service. And it is He who sends them out. He Himself is the farmer. And we are praying to the Lord of the harvest that something will happen. And when we pray, something will happen. The Moravians began a mission work in the 18th century in Africa. The mission started with Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf in a prayer meeting that began in 1727. There were a few Christians that retreated to his place to escape persecution. And as that work was organized, he started them in an organized prayer meeting. That prayer meeting that began in 1727 began with 24 men and 24 women. 
where they prayed in one-hour slots around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Taking the typology of the Old Testament that the fire of the altar should never go out, they put that into their own prayer. And that little assembly, which was then added to by number, prayed that continual prayer meeting uninterrupted for over a hundred years. Praying around the clock, 24-7, 365 for a hundred years. It is not a coincidence or by chance that that group of people sent out more missionaries in the next 20 years than all of the rest of Protestantism combined. Because there is a connection. When you pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up labors, He desires to answer that prayer because He is the one that told us to do it. And so what does happen when we begin praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors? Immediately, chapter 10, verse 1, He summons the twelve. And that is the connection that we are to see. He gave them authority. He equipped them for their ministry. And that authority becomes the submotif in this gospel which He will end with that great declaration. And as we consider what this means for our church and our congregation, there's a few applications for us to consider. Number one, we need to consider where and how to be involved in this mission that Christ has involved us in, that He has evangelized us into, so that now we as the evangelized are part of making others in this mission. We need to have a burden for sinners who are distressed, who are stressed, who are spiritually depraved and spiritually deprived, and for those who are dispirited and cast down. We need to look around and be compassionate toward those whose lives are broken. They are like a sheep without a shepherd, and they cannot fix themselves. Secondly, we need to consider the vast numbers, not only in our own generation that need a shepherd, but the vast growing numbers that will continue to multiply in the coming generations. And third, we need to look on the very few labors that there is for that harvest, and we need to, fourthly, be burdened to pray for those labors. Not just for those that are already there. But we need to specifically and earnestly pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise up and send out labors from the harvest. Now, are you willing to do that at Heritage, earnestly? Are you willing to pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would raise up from even our children labors for the harvest and send them out, even if it means going to a foreign land Perhaps maybe never seeing them or your grandchildren ever again in this life. Are you willing to make that kind of earnest prayer? 
Jesus has already told us the cost of discipleship, and he will continue several more times before we're done and getting to that great commission of the high cost of discipleship. But along with the high cost, he always holds out a glory and a hope and a reward, the likes of which you cannot even imagine. And you have to trust him in that. Folks, we need to pray earnestly, which means that we cannot maintain our idols even of good things and expect the Lord of the harvest to answer our prayers. As we begin to develop a missions philosophy and reduce it to writing based upon the Scriptures, the first thing we need to do is to be praying to the Lord of the harvest and being ready to participate at any level He desires any of us. We may have high hopes and grand plans for our familial vision at Heritage and even in this community. But always be open for what God will do when we begin to earnestly pray in the way He has instructed us here. There was a time early in my life, I grew up a minister's son. I never wanted to be in the ministry. A senior in the youth group, we had a youth time where the youth took over the service for the evening and I was the one assigned to preach. That was my first sermon I ever prepared, the first and the most awful sermon I've ever preached, uh, the likes of which I look back and cringe. But I had the little old ladies. Of course, the preacher had to go to the back and you know greet the people as they leave, like a normal preacher would do. And the little old ladies would come by. Have you ever thought about going to the ministry? In the back of my mind, the eyes were rolling. And I'm like, absolutely not, is what my mind was thinking. He says, no, ma'am, not for me, thank you. I'm going to be an engineer. And I went and became an engineer. A lifelong dream. Pursuit. God did not call me into the ministry kicking and screaming. Not, no, 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 no. Don't ever let that be the picture. He began changing my heart from the inside out. He began working on me and taking the, the, the flavor of engineering out of my mind and spirit. Well, not 100%, but as an old man in the ministry once told me, he says, God will never waste a thing with you. But he began putting a, a different heart and a different bent and a different focus and began calling. I struggled with my call for two and a half years till one day I couldn't refute. And it wasn't that I was struggling against God. I was just trying to know his will. But there was a timing in all of this. And we followed the Lord and he showed us. I said, I would never go back to school. But he showed us that's exactly your next step. So I said, okay, but you got to give me grace, Lord. And we went back, and I look back on those school days that I said I would never go to, and I look back on them with the greatest fondness and the greatest joy, as difficult as those times were. As we got out, we experienced ministry in very difficult ways in planting a church very early on. I had people tell me, you're not gifted for church planting. I had people say, you're not gifted for this, you're not called to that. But I didn't know anything else to do. I was ready to resign and give that up, but not give the ministry up. Perhaps a different course, a different direction. Lord, would you use me in the mission field? Would you use me wherever? And Lord, 
was testing, and he brought forth great understanding and light. And through those temptations and trials that were still working in me to prove me and to test my calling and to establish what he was doing in my life, we now come fast forward to what is before us here today. This is the work of God, working through not just me, but working through you. We have a mission that He has assembled us for. We have a calling that we are gathered here this day to fulfill. We have a ministry to take heed to. And we have something collectively that we are to do. And that is not merely to be settled and satisfied in Kobol, but we have a mission to then in the power and authority of Christ to first of all be praying for labors for the harvest. And if we know nothing else but that right now, that is what we need to be about. And we'll let God open up the doors and show us the direction and what we are to be about. But let your children be a part of those prayers and even the fulfillment of them if he calls them to. I'm very thankful this morning that we are in such a position that he has put us in. I do not know what tomorrow will bring forth and neither do you. But let's expect great things from God as we begin praying for labors for the harvest. Because there's a spiritual dearth out there, but God's got an answer for it in a good shepherd that he shows people, and he'll do that through you. We all have a part to play. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the authority you have given to your Son, Jesus, who is the head of the church and the Savior of the world. And we pray that you would guide us, this church body, to pray diligently for ourselves and for the laborers to be raised up even from among us and sent out. Lord, we have prayed that this ministry might be used here and around the world and that you would use our children mightily. Lord, I pray even for those who may be adults that you would show them very clearly your place in the mission that you have given to them in this context of your church. And we pray that we would be open to whatever you would have for us. That we would not hold on to any dreams that may stand in the way. Any kind of idealisms that could be idols that would prevent us from earnestly praying this. But we pray that you would open up our hearts and lead us with your spirit to pray for your great mission. And we ask that you would be pleased with us and pleased to show us answers to these prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.